0: Welcome to the Sound on Sound People and Music Industry podcast channel. In this episode, we talk about the past, present and future of music technology with AMS Neve's Mark Crabtree. Well, it's an absolute pleasure to meet you and fascinating to get a tour around the AMS Neve factory here. I think one thing that a lot of our readers will be interested in is... They'll know AMS and they'll know Neve as great names from the history of British manufacturing. How did those two names come to be joined together? That's quite a story. I founded AMS in 1976 and obviously
1: Rupert founded Neve in about 1961. And Neve became a part of Siemens within the 1980s. And Siemens approached us and bought AMS in 1990. And so two years the two companies ran in parallel under Siemens ownership and in 1992 I was asked to combine the two companies here in Burnley on the MS site. I was given 10 days in which to do it (laughs) there was a lot a lot going on at the time and so um, it was quite a handful and I think at the time there were probably about 500 people in between
0: the two companies. And that was in the middle of an industry going through a period of great change as well. Yes, it was.
1: Um, I think AMS had, had had come up through the digital route, and we had uh, we, we'd pioneered a whole load of stuff, including microprocessor-controlled board reverbs and DDLs, and started sampling, invented hard disk editing. We moved on to produce a digital console, and Neve had come the other way and had been making analog consoles, and had just uh, was in the process of developing Capricorn, which was. Quite a tortuous birth, and
0: uh, I was given the problem to sort out. <laughs> so tell us about the the invention of sampling then, because that's obviously something that's totally fundamental to music today, but it was completely revolutionary when AMS did it. <laughs> it, it all came
1: out, I mean, my background is, was in digital electronics. I, I worked briefly for an aerospace company before I, I founded AMS, and so microprocessors and memory and things were... Second nature to me. And so um, the first product I wanted to do was to reproduce a, a tape loop echo. And so through a few, a few previous units such as the DM220 flanger, which was a bucket brigade device, I then moved on to a digital thing. And when I was doing the front panel of the of the of what was the 1580, I thought it would be really nice to put a switch on there because I can turn off the right pulse to the memory and it'll just go around in a loop, so that'll be nice. I can have a loop. Uh, and the history of AMS was that we worked closely with the people using the kit, the creative people. And then somebody suggested it would be really nice if you could actually trigger the loop. And so we put in, uh, I put in some software too, so you could trigger the loop and the memory in our units is getting longer and longer and longer. So you could then, in fact... Capture a piece of audio and then trigger it, and then later we put in a, a, a little thing which uh, was a, a sort of envelope detector at the beginning. So you could you could have a microphone with a pad, hit the pad, and a snare drum would come out the other end. So. That's how all that started. Wow,
0: and the rest is history. The rest is say. history, <laughs> really, yeah. But you never thought about developing that into a kind of musical instrument along the lines of Akai or Emu samplers?
1: No. Um, I, every Friday, um, somebody rang me up who was from the original Mellotron company, Les Bradley, and Mellotron was getting into a little bit of difficulty and wanted to do a digital Mellotron, and he knew we'd done this sampling and he, he was asking if we could if we could work with them to produce a digital a digital version of the Mellotron, but we were rather too busy doing doing other things. And so the the application then turned into one of dubbing. We we worked with a lovely guy called Des Bennett at BBC Wales. Now Des Des had the, the lovely job of dubbing Japanese he was an Irishman dubbing Japanese cartoons into Welsh. <laughs> so uh and we worked with Des a lot, which which resulted in the end because he was using the the, the capturing on the on the DDL to to dub his cartoons, uh, and complained that that when we'd when he turned it off, then the sound went, and so we thought, oh, we could put this on hard disk, really. So then we we sort of came up with File, the sort of first really commercially sensible hard disk recorder editor, and so that's how we we were steered not into the
0: musical instrument side, but into the, the sound for post side. One of the fascinating things about AMS Neve is it's one of the few companies out there that really combines an absolutely classic heritage with gear, such as the 1073 that goes all the way back to the 60s and 70s, and on the other hand, totally cutting-edge digital technology. Does it frustrate you that people in the market still look back so much to that sort of classic heritage? Not at all, really. It's it, it's really getting the job done.
1: And I think when when I was doing the early digital stuff, uh, I was very, very clear that I wasn't going to start talking about bits and bytes and megabytes and megaflops and the rest of it. But, um, you know, the, the 1580 and the 1580s were really workhorses. They were there to do a job. And so uh, I used to say at the time, I really don't care if it's got valves in it. But obviously that, that later on became a... Uh, a term of, um, of respect. My first product really was effectively an analog product, which was the the DM220 tape phase simulator. So, um, you know, before that, I was happily making tape recorders and amplifiers and things at home. So, it's not that I'm just stuck on digital. It's it's whatever is the right thing for the job at the time. And, and clearly, um, analog is analog. Your ears are your ears. They they aren't going to go any higher in in uh, frequency response or any lower in frequency response. And when you get something that sounds sounds right and you know how to design something that it sounds right, the 1073 and all the other mic prees that, that we do, the 88R, for instance, um, they really are tuned to, you know, to basically perfection as far as, as producers and musicians go. That's what you want to use because you know what it'll sound like. You know it's going to sound good and you won't, after the event, think... I wish I had a Neve there instead of this this cheap thing I've bought.
0: Well, one of the impressive things you've got in your your little museum here, AMS Neve headquarters, is an old uh, Studer J thirty mm-hmm. seven tape recorder. And we were saying earlier that the what's what's been recorded on that. It's actually only fairly recently that digital playback systems have really been able to play it back as as well as and indistinguishably from the analog source. That's right. Um, and and when I was developing the,
1: the, the pitch changer on, on the, the DMX. I actually used one of the tracks off, off Revolver, the, the four track tape, I have a revolver that runs on it, uh, and Paul's voice on here, there, everywhere, was, was uh, a perfect thing to, to design the, the pitch changer to sound right. And the, the frequency response goes way up there, and it, and it sounds absolutely fantastic. Obviously, it's also got the the genius of George Martin in the recording and the absolute perfection of Abbey Road's uh, technical prowess in getting the the sound onto tape in a in a, a, a laboratory <laughs> environment.
0: To what extent does critical listening still play a key role in the design of AMS Neve products? Then,
1: well, very much. Um, I, I love sound really, and you know, all the way through. I was always playing with speakers and, and getting those to sound right and and making tape recorders sound right and making Amphithofians sound right. And I spent probably the best part of a year designing the algorithms on the RMX 16. Uh if you if you just plug any algorithm into the thing, it sound it can sound like soup. So I wanted it to sound musical pretty well wherever you set it. And so taking great care over the sound of that in the same way we take great care of the sound of of the analogue equipment that we make. We listen to it and listen to it and listen to it. And then, in the end, it's got to pass the ear test, not
0: just the audio precision test. I think we'd all say amen to that. Yeah. How much do you still take the lead personally in product development?
1: Um, I don't do any software development anymore. I don't do any particular hardware development anymore. But I, I specify more or less what it is that we want to make and, and, and work out that this is something that people will want. And then we engage with the people who will use it. In the Genesis console, when I sat down with the team, um, I was saying, I want something that's this big by this big by this big. And then Robin Porter, the chief designer of it, went away and got a ruler and measured where my hands were. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's the starting point. And I also wanted it to be digitally controlled analogue so that you could really get the, the control of the, the great Neve analog sound, as well as just making a, a, a great desk. And so, again, productivity is the other thing that I've always been very interested in. If you, if you go back through the products we've done, they get the job done quicker and, and better sounding. The, the, the first product I had was a tape phase simulator, which you can just get a hold of a knob and turn it, and you've got tape phasing instead of having two tape machines. The, the delay line uh, and, and the reverb, for instance, the, the reverb stop you having to have a big plate that got rusty or a, a room underneath Abbey Road. Uh, the audio file meant that the BBC and other people could take a room that was full of synchronizers and pneumatics and reel-to-reel tapes and everything else and divide that room into four and get the job done in a quarter of the time at twice the, 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 the performance. And so it even applies to things like the 1073, you know, the people who really know what they're doing uh, in, in recording know exactly where to set one of those things to. So they'll, they'll get their favourite microphone, they'll get hold of the knobs on a 1073, they'll go click, 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 and they know what it's going to sound like. So that saves them ages of time, you know, messing about with the microphone preamp, trying to get it just right. They know what they're going to get, so they can get on with the job of recording.
0: That's right, because I think there's a temptation to sort of fetishize the gear for its own, mm. for, yeah. for what it is in itself, yeah. whereas actually it's a, it's a tool to get a job done. Yeah.
1: And so, again, um, my son actually is a drummer in Wishbone Ash, and, and watching what he was doing with a setup at home with endless bits of outboard gear all hung together with string and sealing wax, and it starts to crackle. And so, the, the genesis really came out of, of, of that experience of. You know, once you've got a, a, a big pile of gear you've tried to wire up yourself, and, and it, it still doesn't sound right, you might as well have something that incorporates it all. You can just plug in microphones at one end, a MacBook at the other end, uh, and go. And you've got yourself a
0: whole re- recording setup that works with your DAW of choice. Yes, it's a very interesting product, the Neve Genesis. It's in effect a digitally controlled analog console. So, like a lot of uh, hybrid units you can do DAW control from the faders, for example, but it's also got analog equalization, obviously preamps, compressors, all of which can now be controlled not only from the surface but also from a plug in within your DAW. Yeah. So you have full recall over what is in effect an analog mix. Yeah. Is that very much your personal vision of, of how this should all work?
1: Yeah, it, it's its not just mine, it's mine and the teams. You know, uh, Robin Porter's, you know, has been with Neve for a very, very long time, and, and John Turner and, and and the, you know, the guys who really are the DNA of the Neve sound, you know, they were around when the 1073 was being designed and took part in it. So that that heritage goes back a long way. So we have all of that and we have all of the digital side uh, as well. And so it was really going back to first principles about what you actually needed to do the job rather than, hey, it's another V-series console or it's another SSL 4K or it's another one of those it was a case of analysing how how I or we would want to make music today. Uh, and the only difference is that obviously you can make music uh, and record music in the box, but you're missing such a lot by not, not having it through a console. And very often when you finish doing it in the box, you have to take it to a console anyway. So why not do the whole thing in one go?
0: So when you come up with a product like this, which is in some ways quite unlike what people have seen before is it a challenge to explain to the market
1: Uh, it can be that was what happened with the audio file but obviously that's history is where that went but the once you sit somebody down in front of a genesis and you you just show them a few basic things then they just get it i think it's not something you can you can say easily in words which is obviously not a good idea on a podcast (laughs) but um but once you have Introduce them to it, then they, then they fall in love with it absolutely. And again, my son, he, he he uses Cubase and and various things like that. And and he said, well, what do I need a console for? And so uh, the Genesis that I have at home, he 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 routed his signal out of the Cubase through the digitally controlled EQ on Genesis, and then back into his Cubase. And his and his his jaw hit the deck. The difference in sound between a, a, an EQ, an analog EQ, <laughs> and a, a digital EQ on a on, a, on a, a Cubase or whatever is is vastly different, and so immediately you then started to see the benefit of all all that, and so it becoming a convert to to having a a console, and so the the Genesis Control plugin now allows you to have a, 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 a nice learner curve from just being able to cut and paste in the box to then being able to control the genesis from the screen you're familiar with, and then you can slowly but surely learn really how how you should be driving a console, because they're there for a reason, and they're still there for a reason.
0: So things have almost come full circle in that maybe 15, 20 years ago, you would have been having to educate people coming from analog consoles in how to use a software workflow, and now it's the other way around. That's it. (laughs) That's it. Um, and of course, one aspect of software that's quite familiar today is um, plugins. And there are a lot of official and unofficial recreations of classic Neve products as plugins. I mean, how close do you think they get to the real sort of analog deal?
1: Well, we don't listen to anybody's apart from Universal Audio's. We we work very very closely with them, and uh, the amount of care and attention that goes into to their plugins is 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 incredible. And we've auditioned everything that they've done to, to go, well, this is as close as you're going to get without it being the actual analogue circuitry.
0: Yeah, because I guess for, for many sound-on-sound sound readers, something like the Universal Audio Neve 1073 is probably the closest they're going to mm. get to working on a Neve console. Yeah. Yeah. Although you do, of course, make, for instance, 500 series mm. modules. What's your view on the, the 500 series as a, as a format? Um, it works very well, really. It's
1: very convenient. You can mix and match. You can. It was something that that felt like a good thing to do. You know, we we talked to Vintage King about about uh, what people were asking for. We we always listen to the market. We always listen to the musicians and producers. And it's gone very well. You know, it, I think it's their biggest selling microphone five hundred series preamp.
0: And do you feel like it's taking sales away from the rack mounting units, or are they still strong as well?
1: Um, it's horses for courses, really. It, it's it's another option. It's another option.
0: One of the things about the 1073 and other sort of classic NIVE designs is, of course, they're now any patents have now expired. So anyone's pretty much free to go and take that circuit and make something that's ostensibly and outwardly a 1073 and looks like a 1073 and perhaps even sounds a bit like a 1073. And obviously some of those, because they're made in the Far East, come in more affordably than the, the real AMS Neve 1073. But what are the risks involved to people in, in going down that route if you say, well, I'm going to save myself a few hundred quid by buying this non-1073? Well, I mean, a lot of people
1: want to have what looks like a 1073 in, in their rack in their studio. And it, it probably impresses you know, people who come in who know what they're doing with their ears. But you know, you might as well, in some cases, just stick a photograph of a, a 1073 there because you don't really know what's gone on behind the scenes, really. And we we make 1073s because it's 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 kind of our product, really. And you know, we have all the original uh, drawings, the the transformer specification is is in pencil that, that Rupert and the team did all those years ago with loads of. Specifications on there, which which uh, none of the, the people who make the transformers, other than us, uh, know what they are. And so, yes, you bought yourself a transformer by well-known manufacturers, and and you say, whoopee, that makes it a 1073 1073, but it doesn't really. And you know, I, th- I think we we feel a bit embarrassed that if if you've gone out and bought something that says 1073 on the front, but it doesn't say Neve on the front. And somebody comes in and, and it, it really doesn't sound right it, it reflects badly on us and I think that's that's the that's the distressing
0: part about it. The flagship AMS Neve product at the moment is obviously the DFC the digital film console um, which is increasingly becoming something of a standard in kind of high-end dubbing studios. On the face of it, you might expect people to have moved over entirely to a kind of in-the-box workflow or just using hardware controllers to govern software. But what we're seeing is that actually people are mixing on these hardware consoles. What are the advantages of that?
1: Well, I think if you're talking about you know a final mix stage uh, when you've got a huge theatre and you've got three people driving a, a console then you really need an awful lot of channels and uh, given that the dfc will handle your 2000 channels it, it's got built into it all the the dolby atmos workflow and everything else yes you can try and do it with with you know you can make films on on avid stuff and a lot of people do but if you really want to get the you know the, the proper result then you you kind of need something of the of the scale of a dfc with its it's two thousand paths and and uh, and those capabilities.
0: And those super high channel counts are currently mostly handled over MADI, I gather, in in the film world. Yeah. But you've been looking into audio over IP as an alternative.
1: Yeah, a lot of the the, the big film studios are really heavily invested in MADI. But as as the um, as things move on, I think Dante is probably going to be a, a, a a connection medium of choice and so obviously since we are dealing with such high channel counts we we, we will be uh, having you know 500 channels up one ethernet cable for those large purposes but obviously that then spins down onto the rest of our product range we have a number of outboard units that, that will head that way and uh, some new units coming out which uh, will
0: take full use of, of uh, Dante capabilities so do you think we'll see, in the end, Dante actually taking over in the project studio realm as well? Or is it going to remain a sort of high-end professional protocol for the time being?
1: I think it's going to get everywhere. It's it's so convenient. It, I mean, being able to have um, an XLR to, to put a signal into a, a console and know it's going to get there. We went through all the, the synchronisation and, and all the other things that had to do with AES and making sure who was the master on Maddie and it got complicated, I think being able to have an RJ45 and plug it into one thing and then plug it into another one and know you're going to get your audio through is very convenient and uh, and we've seen what, what's happened everywhere else. It, it's, it's a really, really good good um, method of gluing things together.
0: One of the things that seems to be characteristic of modern digital, high-end digital audio things is that they're necessarily quite complicated. Anything involving audio over IP or large channel counts or Dolby Atmos or anything, it's as much an exercise in IT configuration as it is in traditional audio skills. How important are things like training and education as far as AMS Eva are concerned?
1: Well, clearly, if we deliver a, a big console, then we've got... Um, you know, when we commission it, we we offer training to it. Um, in terms of training in in uh, audio techniques and how to do it, we we do a lot of work with about the ten universities and schools of of music and so on. They they come here to our exhibition floor and spend a few hours there, give them the history of how the technology is developed. They get to play with the hands-on stuff. I mean, if you're, if you're a student at a university, you don't often get the chance to work on a 2,000-path a film mixing console. And so uh, if you want to get into a studio when they're mixing a Bond movie, then they're not going to let you in. But it's a good experience
0: for people to come and, and, and do that here and, and work actually on the kit. And one of the almost unique things about AMS and Eve now it, is that you're still manufacturing all of your products here in the UK in Burnley, you're clearly a very proud Burnley man, mm-hmm. and you've, you've put a lot back into the local community. I, mean, I guess a lot of that is also about developing the human resources that you're going to need to find to rec- and recruit the next generation of engineers. I mean, is that a challenge?
1: It, it's a challenge if we don't do it. And uh, I think the government said that by 2021 20, or 22, Britain needs two million more engineers, otherwise the future doesn't look very good. And yet... My daughter, who's a primary school teacher, has had no CDT training at all in in a PGCE. So, um, what we've what I've done here is that we we we've arranged and sponsored primary engineer lessons. So all all Burnley primary school children uh, have have been able to have lessons in making model electric cars. So fifteen thousand Burnley. Primary school children so far have, have had that experience and they absolutely love it. And the, at the same time, the teachers have been trained, so the teachers are then able to pass that on. And, and watching these, these children learn how to use tools, learn how to, to see when something doesn't work, that they, they can try a different way instead of bursting into tears, has been fantastic. And that first cohort has got through to the age of now um, 14, and twice as many of those are choosing STEM subjects at school. So that's really satisfying to see that coming through.
0: Well, that's wonderful. It must be amazing to feel that you're making that kind of a difference.
1: Yeah, and we're working with the colleges, and and downstairs today we've got, uh, I think, four people on degree apprenticeships from the local university, and we've got about four people in who are um, apprentices between 16 and 18 so the next generation of Mark Crabtree's is, is just around the corner. Well, we're trying hard. The, the RMX-16, it's really nice to revisit that office after so many years in a 500 series rack. But one of the, the chief engineers that has worked on that with me uh, is 22. Wow,
0: that's wonderful. Well, it's nice to know that the future is in safe hands. And thanks very much oh. for your time, Mark. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening, and be sure to check out the show notes page for this episode, where you'll find further information along with web links and details of all the other episodes. And just before you go, let me point you to the soundonsound.com forward slash podcast website page, where you can explore what's playing on our other channels.